Well, I have a friend who has owned 24 Nissans. 24 new Nissans. He goes to the same dealer over and over again to get the same brand. Never goes to another car dealer. Never looks for a different kind of car. Sometimes he goes and buys one for himself, and sometimes he goes and buys one for himself and one for his wife. Over and over again. Why? Because he likes Nissans. They service him well. Because he likes the dealership. They take good care of him, and so he goes over and over again. That's loyalty. Conversely, my 82-year-old mother goes and picks up her 85-year-old sister because they like to go to the Dairy Queen, the Dairy Queen, to get hot dogs. (laughs) Well, on a recent visit, neither of them felt well after eating the hot dogs, and the two of them concluded they got some bad chili. So my mother called me and told me this story, and she said, you know what, we've decided we're not going to go back to Dairy Queen anymore. I said, Mom, you've been going to Dairy Queen for 60 years. You've been getting great hot dogs at Dairy Queen for 60 years. You can't stop going because they might have made one mistake. Well, what does loyalty look like in your life? Does it look more like my friend in the Nissan or more like my mother in the Chili Dogs? Though my mother is a very loyal person. It's just this one little slip up. (laughs) How loyal are you? And... How easy is it for you to become disloyal? And how would you describe your loyalty to God? Do you come to Him over and over and over again? Or do you shop somewhere else for something else or someone else that you think truly could satisfy you a little more than the Lord? Bring you a little more happiness in your life? How easy is is it for you to write God off because you think in some way that He has failed you? or not performed as you want Him to perform. See, you and I are called to be loyal to God. Loving God means that you and I are loyal to Him. And that's what I want us to consider this morning as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles open to that chapter, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the Word of the Living God. Once I turn there myself. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Moses is speaking. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that your children and their children after may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, He swore to your fathers 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask now that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word. And once again, we call on you, Spirit of God, to be the teacher. And we ask that you would, as you promised, guide us into all truth. And what is not true, Lord, may it be forgotten. But what is true, impress it on our hearts, on our minds. And may we live by the truth that you reveal to us today. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. So why is it that you and I should be loyal? Well, the easy answer to that question is because God has commanded us to be, and He's God. And so that's the end of the discussion. But His demand isn't baseless. And it isn't in spite of what His character merits. Years ago, I saw this crazy movie. It was called Mommy Dearest. Anybody ever seen that movie? It's about the famous actress Joan Crawford. And the movie is from a book that her adopted daughter Christine wrote, and she described having Joan Crawford as a mother. Well, there's this crazy scene where Joan Crawford goes into her little girl's closet in the middle of the night to admire all the beautiful dresses that she's bought for her daughter. As she's going through the dresses, she finds one hanging on a wire hanger. And she goes crazy because there's a wire hanger in the closet. And so she starts ripping all the dresses off of the hanger and she puts them in a a pile on the floor. And then she goes and she wakes up her little girl, Christine, and she says, what are wire hangers doing in this closet? Christine says, "I, I don't know. I don't know. And so Joan starts beating her with the wire hanger. No wire hangers in this closet. And then she demands Christine to get up. And clean up all the mess that she's made. To which Christine says, yes, mommy. Joan responds, yes, mommy, what? Christine fearfully says, yes, mommy, dearest. To which Joan says, when you call me that name, say it like you mean it. Freak show. But many people describe God this way. People that you know and people that I know, He's demanding, He's petulant, He's pouting, He's punishing when He is not obeyed. These are, of course, are reasons they present for not believing in God because He is this kind of God, but that's not what God is like. Your love for God... And my love for God, expressing itself in loyalty to Him, is not unfounded or undeserved. Do this. Look back in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, verse 29. God says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Look in verse 33 of chapter 5. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you'll possess. Now look in verse 2 of chapter 6. 
Moses commands the people to obey God so that you may enjoy long life. Verse 3, hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land. And verse 24, The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. I only hear good intentions in these verses, don't you? I only hear the designer of the world telling people how to best live in the world that he's created. I hear God putting before these people as they stand on the edge of the promised land, the land that he is giving them, how to live to ensure that their future will be bright and beautiful. They will prosper. Their lives will be long and full. Their lives abundant. Their families will grow and flourish if they obey God. See, God is well-intentioned. Well-intentioned toward his people. God is on our side. You know that? God is on our side. And the Lord longs to bless His people. And so that is reason for our love and loyalty because of the way that the Lord blesses us when we obey Him. There's a second reason, and that's found in verse 4. This is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what a blessing this is. And the emphasis in this verse is on that word one. The very last word in the sentence in Hebrew, it it, it holds that final climactic position. And some Hebrew scholars, not all, but many believe that the word one is actually a name for God, like Yahweh and Jehovah, one, because the Lord is one. So it isn't just that God is unique, though he certainly is that. It is that he is the only. And in this present context, it means that God and God alone has the power to deliver His people. It means that God and God alone has the ability to bless His people in the land to which they're going. God and God alone can give His people complete security. To get the full impact of this verse, we have to keep it in His context, in its context and think about the people who heard it. If they think back in their past, they go back to Egypt. That was their past. And Egypt was a nation that was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. As they look to their future, they're going into a land that is also filled with nations who are polytheistic. They worship many gods. But Israel is to be different. They're to worship one God, the only one, not one among many. And so their lives are to be drastically different and, as a result, drastically better than the lives of those around them. See, the many other gods of the many nations led to a life of tension and insecurity. Because look, even if you diligently worship whichever god it is that you are worshiping, what if there is a conflict among the gods? What if the gods get into a squabble, as they are prone to do? Then what happens to your life? What happens if your God doesn't end up being the top God? 
And what if the God that you are so diligently worshiping that is well-intentioned toward you is overpowered by another God who is threatening? Then what are you going to do? The Philistines were not the least bit surprised, I don't think, when Dagon fell. You know the Philistines? They live in the promised land. And the people of Israel were supposed to drive them out, but they never did drive out the Philistines from the promised land, as God commanded them to do. But that's another story. So on one occasion, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. That's another story too. But when they captured the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they took it into the temple of Dagon, their God. And they put the Ark of the Covenant right by the idol, the statue of Dagon, and they left it there. Well, the next morning, the people went into the temple, and what did they find? The the statue of Dagon had fallen flat, face down on the ground, before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So they pick up Dagon and put him back in his place. They go away. The next morning, they come back. Guess what happened to Dagon? Boom, fallen, face down, on the floor, on the ground, in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This time, his arms and head broken off, so that poor Dagon was just a body. And so this is life for these people. You just never know, morning by morning, what's going to happen to your God. And so when the people saw this happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So your God is a loser. You have to set him up, not once, but twice. And then you've got to try to get rid of the God, somehow get, drive out the God who's more powerful than he is. This is life for people who were polytheistic. So where were they to get any peace? Where were they to get any security? When you get up in the morning, you know, you you get up not knowing, even if your best effort will do any good because your God might get you in trouble with another God. And so it's no wonder. The polytheistic cultures and nations, their religion was so pessimistic, always. You could never have security. You could never have peace. But look, that's why Yahweh, God, is different. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's the one and only, and He is one. And listen, when God speaks, there's no one to contradict. And when God promises, there's no one to revoke that promise. And when God acts, there's no one to undo that action. And when God demands, there's no one that can turn it into a suggestion. And when God warns, there's no one else that you can run to for refuge. He is one God, the only one. And we can't get our minds around this. Because we are people of choices. Choices are so much a part of of our lives. Uh, It's like it's the air we breathe. We don't even notice the choices any more than a bird notices the air that it flies in. Go to the grocery store. Choices. Go to a restaurant. Man, I go to a Mexican restaurant and it takes me half an hour just to read the menu. And then I have to decide, what is it I I want? Choices. Choices. Always choices. There's always someone else we can turn to. We learn that as children because first we go to Dad. And if Dad says no, where do we go? Mom. Well, what if Mom happens to team up with Dad against you? Well, you know what? I'm going to call Grandma. And I want to see if Grandma can call Dad and get him to change his mind. And yes, at least one of my children tried that in their lifetime. But not with God. He's God and there is no other. 
And this is probably the characteristic of God that makes him most offensive in our world today. It's probably the number one reason that people reject him because he is one. God is it. He does not offer. And so therefore we do not have any other viable choice. Well, what if I don't like him and want someone else? Too bad. What if I don't want to worship a God who won't give me choices? Well, then don't. But be prepared to face the consequences for that decision. Because there is no one else who can save you or anyone else if you reject him and the salvation he offers in Christ. There's no one else who can undo what he has said. No one who can embrace you and say, well, I don't care what that old God said. You don't have to do it and I won't let him do anything to you. No, that person doesn't exist. You cannot. No one can escape the reality of God. You can not. But why would you want to? Why would anyone want to? That's the question. The oneness of God, the implications of that reality should be the source of our greatest joy. Listen to what Jesus said. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. You know why that's true? Because the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. Who can contradict Him? Who can say it isn't so? Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. You know why this is true? Because the Lord our God, the Lord, is one. Who can contradict Him? Who can say it isn't so? Turn to Romans 8. Do you have your Bibles? Romans 8. New Testament. I don't know what page it's on. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, chapter 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who? No one. Why? Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who can contradict Him? Who can say it isn't so? Look in verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who? No one. Why? Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who can contradict Him? Who can say it isn't so? Keep reading. It's God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Who is it? Who is it? No one. Why? Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? The answer is no one. Why? Because the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But they line up and try. Those who are lesser than God shall trouble, hardship, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. They rise up against God. Trouble. 
trying to grab us out of his grip. Hardship trying to pull us away. Persecution and danger trying to loosen his grip. But God says, what has God said? No, I won't let them go. And you're helpless to do anything about it. Now, verse 37. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither future, the present, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The list is comprehensive. Nothing is more powerful than God. Your present and mine, that that tries to pull us away. All the stuff that we're dealing with right now can't separate us from the love of God. Our future, we worry about it. I know you do. You're lying if you don't. I worry about it too, even though we're not supposed to. Cannot separate us from the love of God. And just in case Paul left anything out of his list, he gathers everything up like this in this one phrase, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Who can contradict Him? Who can say it isn't so? Who can defeat His will? So, here, O Redeemer Presbyterian Church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So what should our response be? What should our response be to a God like this? who blesses us, a God who is one. Look in verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's what we're called to do, to love the Lord. I can't see what's unreasonable about this requirement. I can't. Why should God not require that of us, particularly when He knows that when we do it, when we love Him with all our heart, soul, uh, and strength, that, that we'll be blessed that we'll be kept away from things that deprive us of blessing, that we'll retain the blessings that God has already given to us. To me, it takes much more, much more explanation and much more irrational intellectual maneuvering to explain why we should not love the Lord, who is well-intentioned for us, who seeks our good, who wants to bless us, Why should we not love the Lord who is one and has chosen us to be his objects of affection and protection? So how do we express that love? I have a confession to make. I have not bought Kathy roses for 27 years. Isn't that terrible? Really? 27 years. This past Friday, two days ago, marked the 27th anniversary of me not buying Kathy roses. I bought her roses once on October 23rd, 1986. It was her birthday. I bought her roses a second time on January 31st, 1987 to mark the one-month anniversary of our engagement. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) Kathy took the roses. She was very thankful and very gracious about it. But over over the course of the next few months, she pointed out how much she loved wildflowers. Look at those beautiful wildflowers. I love wildflowers. Aren't aren't wildflowers beautiful? There's just something about wildflowers. So, hey, a brick wall doesn't always have to fall on me. Sometimes, yes, but not always. And so I took the hint. And I said, you know what? Kathy doesn't really like roses. 
And she never came right out and said that she didn't, but I figured it out. Roses are not Kathy's love language, and so I've never bought her roses again. Isn't that true, Kathy? I've never bought you roses again. And I am proud of it. Sometimes we don't get it. And by we, I usually mean men, because we don't get the love language thing. We have to be told. And women don't always directly tell us. They hint about it because they think if they directly tell us, and somehow it's not authentic. And so, you know, it's trial and error and trying to pick up the clues. And sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't. But God doesn't make us wonder. God doesn't make us guess at what his love language is or how it is that we are to love him. We're to love him with all of our being, all heart, all soul, all of our strength. We express our love to God by our loyalty to him. Jesus repeated this very command in the New Testament. He said, it's the greatest commandment of all to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then Jesus says, you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so loving God and being loyal to him and obeying him, it's all part of loving God. That's how we express it to him. You can read through all of these verses, verse 29 of chapter 5 and 32 and 33 and and chapter 6, verse 1, 2, 3, 6 and 17, all of them talk about obeying God, obeying God, obeying God, his commands and his statutes. That's how we show our love for God, by being loyal to him and obeying him and his commandments only in our lives. And this isn't a a battle between grace. And I know we're so protective now. Don't forget grace, Craig, and obedience. They're they're not at war. They're not here. Let's leave the battle for for, for the game tonight, okay? Uh, The Broncos and Seahawks, let them battle it out. It's not a battle between grace and obedience. It's part of loving God is obeying Him, being loyal to Him, going back to Him again and again and again. Loyalty that says, I won't consider looking anywhere else for what only God can provide. Loyalty that doesn't give up, but that trusts that all things, even hard things and difficult things and painful things and disappointing things, they all work together for good, for those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Sometimes the chili is going to be bad. It is. But don't give up. Loyalty is remembering God. And that's what he commands us to do here. Do not forget. Do not forget the Lord. That's what Adam and Eve did. God made this beautiful garden for them. Gave it to them. Here. Enjoy it. But they forgot the Lord. Not in the sense they said, the Lord? Who is the Lord? Not that kind of forgetting. They forgot what the Lord was like. And they allowed God to be defined by someone else. And that someone else was Satan. And he defined God to them as ill-intentioned toward Adam and Eve. He asked Eve, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Satan says, Surely you will not die, he said to Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan portrayed God as a liar, as someone keeping something from Adam and Eve that could be for their good. He he, he 
implied that, that the Lord was withholding information from them, keeping truth from them, so they betrayed God. And they believed something about God that they had never experienced in their lives. That He was ill-intentioned toward them. God had never done anything to make them doubt Him, but they did. How long they had experienced the goodness of God and the fellowship of God in that garden, I don't know. But man, it just took one visit, one input from a new voice, and they were quick to believe and quick to betray God. And their subsequent action, eating the fruit, proclaimed, we believe Satan, we don't believe God. And we wish the script read differently. That at the first suggestion that God was ill-intentioned toward them, that they would have jumped to the defense of God. We know this isn't true, what you're saying about God. Or that they would have said, how dare you? How dare you say such things about our good and gracious and glorious God? Or that they would say, you better get out of here before we call God to kick you out. (laughs) That's loyalty to God. And that's what God in all of His abundant goodness deserved from Adam and Eve. Though He didn't get it. And that's what God deserves from the people of Israel as they take possessions of cities and houses they didn't build. And as they drink from wells they didn't dig and eat from olive groves and vineyards that they did not plant for themselves. When they enjoy all that, God deserves their loyalty. God deserves it from us. For all the grace, all the grace that He's lavished on us at no cost through Christ. And so we betray Him when we attribute ill will to God who loves us so much. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? That's God's will toward us. So we betray Him when we credit anyone else, anything else, as the source for what God has graciously given to us. But we're not called to betrayal, we're called to loyalty. You know what, I I don't doubt for a minute that most of you here, like me, we want to be loyal, don't we? We want to obey. I don't have to sell you on that. Oh, you need to obey. We know that. As a matter of fact, it's probably forefront in our mind a lot of the times and we have to consciously suppress what we know we should do so we can go ahead and do what we know we shouldn't do. I don't need to sell you on that. Man, the purpose of us being here together this morning, you know, in this place and and, and worshiping together as a community and, and hearing the Word of God preached together is to remind us of who God is and why we should obey Him and why we can obey Him and the blessing and the benefits of obeying Him And we can remind each other of these truths. And when we see each other looking around, shopping around for another place or another source or another person to do what only God can do, we can remind each other of this. The Lord our God. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. Say that with me. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. One more time. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that you would help us live by the truth that all of us have just proclaimed that you are God, you are God alone, you are one. Thank you, Lord, for all that means for our lives. Because it is true, you are God alone, and we know you. 
We have a relationship with you through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a blessing it is to our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that we would live lives of obedience to you, loyalty to you, Lord. So many things would drag us away uh, to to try to keep us from going to you. They, They offer better things, shinier things, glitzier things. Come here, they say to us. But Lord, we know you are the one and only, true and living God. Blessing comes to all of our lives only through you and by your grace to us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would live our lives in the light of that truth. And that, Lord, we would be accountable to one another. And that we see the person who may be sitting beside us right now living their life like they don't believe that, that we would remind them, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Don't go anywhere else. Don't look for anything anywhere else that only God can give to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would transform us by this truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.